Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Coming up on this edition of the podcast, you'll be hearing from one of the members of the Board of Directors of the National Day of Prayer, Kathy Branzell, who discussed with me the importance of the National Day of Prayer, which occurs on the first Thursday of May each year, and shared some comments relative to her new 90-day guide to prayer. Then with our commemoration of Christ's death and resurrection having recently passed, you'll be hearing from a medical doctor, Joe Bergeron, who visited with me at Faith Radio Meeting House Media Central at the 2019 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Anaheim, California. He related observations about what Jesus endured for us before and during his crucifixion, as well as gave some insight into the resurrection. You'll be hearing some content from that conversation. Also, in advance of a special event in Montgomery, Alabama at Landmark Church, Anthony Thompson, whose wife died in the shooting at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, in which nine people lost their lives, shared what he has learned about forgiveness in the aftermath of that tragedy. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, back to the exhibit hall at NRB 2019 in California, some comments from Mary Margaret Bowden. She's a dance instructor, the founder of Soul to Soul Choreography and DANCE, D-A-N-C-E, an acronym for Dance Awareness, No Child Exploited. She shared concerns about inappropriate expressions in modern dance. Finally, an author who has written a timely devotional guide that can be used to inspire Christians in the aftermath of Easter, Laurie Polich Short, who walks through some verses in the Old and New Testaments that may not be the most well-known, but that contain powerful truth. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Kathy Branzell is a member of the Board of Directors for the National Day of Prayer. In our recent conversation, she shared principles related to her book, An Invitation to Prayer, Developing a Lifestyle of Intimacy with God. From that recent conversation, this is Kathy Branzell. We have a need for unity. We have a need, um, of course, God wants his house to be a house of prayer, and it is important that there is 365 prayer um, as uh, we are the church, but also in the buildings known as, you know, our small C churches, the buildings of the church, the schoolhouses for the disciples. Um, but we also want that prayer to overflow into our communities. And so there's a need for there it to be in boardrooms and classrooms and living rooms and, you know, out by flagpoles and on steps and in parks and other public places. We want there to be public gatherings of unity. Um, not for us to be siloed off, but for us to come together and people to see in our communities across our states um, that we are a loving, prayerful group of people that are crying out to the Lord on behalf of our nation. So I would say there's a great need for unity. And also then in love, Jesus said, love as I have loved you. And it goes back to that prayer care share. If you read the Gospels and you see every day along the way, that's how Jesus lived. He prayed. He cared for people that he came in contact with. He met their physical needs. He made them feel safe with him and loved by him with the way that he talked to them. And then he shared the kingdom message. And there is a great need for that across the nation and in inviting people to come to our different prayer gatherings on the National Day of Prayer, and then to church and beyond, and, you know, just to journey with people 
through getting to know and becoming a disciple, you know, curious about Jesus. Well, Kathy, you've written this book entitled An Invitation to Prayer, the subtitle Developing a Lifestyle of Intimacy with God. Tell me about your own inspiration for writing this book, An Invitation to Prayer. I loved writing this book. It was exciting. One of the things, um, my hobby is neuroscience. And so every day I have my prayer time, I have my Bible study time, and then I read a um, white paper or a journal or a textbook concerning neuroscience, because I love how you can lay science on top of Scripture and hear God say, I told you so. And so in the way (laughs) that He developed us, understanding that prayer is a conversation, Um, it's a builder of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so just like you would have a conversation with somebody that you're trying to get to know better, that you love, that you want to delight, that you want to know about them and how to how to please them. You know, that's how I see prayer. That's how we know kingdom come will be done. And so in this book, I lay a little science in and talking about the way that God knit us together in our mother's womb. He he created us in a way that we're always our core conscious without us even realizing it is always asking, am I safe? And we, we know the response is fight or flight. The second question is, am I loved? Am I cared for? And if and only if the answer is yes to both of those questions, the brain turns on and says, what can I learn? And so in these devotions of this book, I talk about how um, the five things that I have learned in all of my Um, ministry that God has allowed me to do. You read some of my resume earlier, but uh, as a rapid response chaplain for Billy Graham, going into some areas of uh, devastation, uh, going across the world and ministering to people there, I have found there's five things that every human being is looking for, and it's peace, love, wisdom, happiness, and purpose. But those things can only be found in God only found in God. We look for them in possessions and power and positions and all these other things, other people, but it can only be found in God. And so in this devotional book, it is a, um, it is a journey that goes deeper and deeper and deeper as you go through the 90 days. And it starts each week found and foundational in God. And then Monday is peace. Tuesday is love. Wednesday is wisdom. Thursday is happiness, Friday is purpose, and then Saturday is Selah, pause and ponder. So based on what you learned and what you prayed throughout the week, how you will you believe and behave differently? And so this is a deeper journey to make prayer and those five things a habit found only in your personal relationship with Jesus. Kathy Branzell here on The Intersection. The National Day of Prayer website is nationaldayofprayer.org. You can find her on Twitter at PrayCat, K-A-T. Well, next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's medical doctor Joe Bergeron, the author of the book, The Crucifixion of Jesus, A Medical Doctor Examines the Death and Resurrection of Christ. He visited Faith Radio Meeting House Media Central at the 2019 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Anaheim, California, to discuss physical aspects of what Christ experienced before on and after the cross. From that conversation, this is Joe Bergeron. Let me talk about the resurrection, if I could, for Absolutely, a bit. yes. Uh, because 
I understand that there are many people that will never accept the idea that God exists or that anything supernatural could occur. Uh, and so that they propose ideas like, well, they went to the wrong tomb, or, or somebody snatched the body, or the disciples perpetrated a hoax. And you know, the logic of those things fall flat very rapidly. Uh, the usual practice with crucifixion victims was to leave them on the cross, and they would be devoured by scavenging animals. All that, all that the Jewish uh, high priest had to do was exhume Jesus' body, put it back on the cross, uh, and let it, let it do the usual way, and it would, Christianity would not exist. However, they were not able to do that, and that's a very telling fact. It would be easy to have done, and they would have liked to do it, I'm sure. Uh, and some people, understanding the logical problems with body snatchers and so forth, have gravitated toward the idea that the disciples were hallucinating. The problem is, that's a medical diagnosis, and none of the writers that talk about that really discuss the medical implications of what it means to hallucinate, because something has to cause the hallucination. It has to be a brain tumor, it has to be a chemical derangement of the brain uh, or body, or it has to be severe psychiatric illness. And, and you would have all, all of them actually experiencing the same thing at the same time. And, and that's <laughs> counterintuitive that they would all have severe uncontrolled psychiatric <laughs> right. illness. And hallucin Not. what hallucination cannot do, uh, no two people have the same hallucination because it, in, it occurs in the internal milieu of the brain. And so the group appearances of Jesus, even to 500 people at once, uh, as it recorded in, in Corinthians, uh, cannot be explained by any psychological explanation. So as you conclude the book and talk about the resurrection and all of these theories that you've basically debunked here for the last few minutes, how do you deal with the, the resurrection and that, that overall occurrence in the book? Well, I, I've, I've said many times that going through what has been a 10-year study for me makes me more convinced that what I believe is, is accurate and that my faith is, is sure. Uh, Blaise Pascal was a, a prodigy, uh, a mathematician, physicist, known for fluid mechanics, and he invented the syringe, which is something that I use every day. And he became a committed Christian in his adult life and wrote his apologetic works. And he made one statement that I thought was profound. He said, it's not possible to mistake a man risen from the dead. And, you know, we, we go to great lengths to create to make logical arguments about why we believe what we believe. But when it gets down to the core issue, you just can't mess that up. You cannot mistake someone risen from the dead. And Jesus' disciples, early disciples in the first century, uh, experienced extreme torture. Many of them died, but they would not recant their belief and their experience that they saw the resurrected Christ. Well, as we conclude, we've obviously spent a lot of time talking about the medical circumstances, the medical implications of the death of Jesus. So as we approach this Holy Week, Good Friday, and of course, Easter Sunday, from a spiritual standpoint, why is it important that we understand what Jesus went through and how do you see the significance of what he endured so that we might know him? I, I think to me the most telling thing is the Last Supper. When Jesus took the cup 
and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he was referring to the prophecy in Jeremiah where God was going to create a new covenant, a new relationship with man and redefine his relationship with man, where he would recreate the heart of mankind. And that was instituted at the death of, of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's why he died, to Im- implement the new covenant. And then he said, this is my blood which is poured out for the remission of sins. And he in my, when I read that, I thought he told us his cause of death. Hmm. He told us he was going to bleed to death. And that's, that's really what is supported by the medical facts. And the theological implement, impl, uh, uh, implications are enormous, as I said. God redefined his relationship with humanity through Jesus Christ. Joe Bergeron here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website crucifixionbook.com. I had the chance recently to talk with Anthony Thompson, pastor of Holy Trinity Reformed Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He shared about how God worked in his life in the aftermath of his wife's death in the 2015 Charleston church shooting. He's written a book entitled Call to Forgive, the Charleston church shooting, a victim's husband, and the path to healing and peace. Here now from that conversation is Anthony Thompson. I had just returned home from my church and received a phone call about shooting at Emmanuel. So we're five minutes away from there, and I got down there like one of the first responders, frantically looking for my wife, and and I discovered she was dead. I just lost control mm. for the first time in my life. You know, I just, I just fell on the ground, wallowing on the pavement, crying, you know, just saying I don't know what to do, thinking there's no more purpose in life. And I was just torn. And this voice said, get up. And I thought maybe some people around me were talking. But anyway, make a long story short, third time it told me to get up, I I realized it was God himself. I've heard that voice before. I heard that voice when I was seven. Heard that voice uh 2010. It's been with me all the time. So I, I recognized who he was. And he wanted me to get up. He wanted me to stop wallowing. He wanted me to stop crying. And he was being a little harsh about it. Anyways, and I did. I got up. And um, he directed me as to what he wanted me to do. Going to church that Sunday, which I thought I would never be able to make it to church that Sunday. You mm-hmm. talk about Wednesday night, a few days, a few days um, uh, after that. And he gave me a scripture, St. Luke 17, chapter 1 through the 4th verses, where it literally tells you that things happen in your life will cause you to stumble, but don't worry about it. God has your back. He wants you to forgive. And that was preparation right there. So really from the, just about from the moment when you showed up at Emmanuel Church that night in Charleston, you really sensed the Holy Spirit was doing a work of forgiveness in your heart. In my heart, long before the bond hearing, the bond hearing was only maybe two days away, which At that time, I wasn't thinking about it. I was still thinking about my wife, that she suffer, you know, just went on and uh, had no idea who committed the crime, didn't want to know, had no really harsh feelings. I was just thrown. But, yeah, it started that night. Of course, I didn't realize what was going on. I didn't know he was preparing me to forgive Dylan, but that's the scripture he gave me. And two days later... Went to a bond hearing, which, again, I didn't want to go to the bond hearing, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I, I was a retired agent for 27 years. 
I've taken plenty of people to bond hearings, and you they set a bond, they go back to their cell. I didn't find it to be very important nor significant, but my children did. Again, God working to get me there. So they changed my mind, went to the bond hearing, was very adamant with them about keeping your mouths closed, don't say anything, we're going to go in here, we're going to listen to maybe a couple of people, then we're going to leave. Well, we got there, I was watching my watch, and, and Nadine was one of the first to tell Dylan she forgive him and to have mercy in his soul. And after that, I look at my kids, I say, okay, let's go. And the magistrate said, is there anyone here from the Thompson family, who, from the Myers Thompson side, who would like to talk? I look at my kids like, we're not doing this. And then God came in again, and he said, again, get up, I have something to say. And I got up. On my way to the podium, I'm like, okay, come on, because I don't have anything to say. What you got to say, let's say it. But on the way there, I, he made me realize that I was just as much a sinner as Dylan was, even though he committed this horrendous crime and 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 and, and should have gone the other way. But it came out of my mouth. I said, son, I forgive you. My family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent and confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so that he can change it, change your ways. And no matter what happens to you, you will be okay. Do that. And you will be better off than you are right now. And immediately that's when I received peace like no other. And so that's why. And he, and he, and he told me my mission was to spread the gospel of forgiveness. Didn't understand why, but... But I know when I forgave him, I received peace immediately. Everything, literally, I felt leaving my body. Anger, hate, everything, literally leaving my body. I was light as a feather when he got through with me. Hmm. And I received a peace, that peace that passes all understanding, and I still have it this day. And so I know what forgiveness can do. Material from a recent conversation with Anthony Thompson here on the Intersection Podcast. The Intersection is a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests heard here on The Intersection Podcast. You can also find the podcast in the Media Center as well as iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through the Meeting House homepage. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, released on a weekly basis. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and there is a link to video content, including recently added content from the 2019 NRB Convention. You can find content from the Meeting House program through the Faith Radio app, Learn more about the app when you go to faithradio.org. You can also find content from The Meeting House through a variety of other apps. Learn more when you visit the homepage. Well, continuing now here on the Intersection Podcast, it's Mary Margaret Bodden. She is a dance instructor. She is the founder of Soul to Soul Choreography and Dance which is an acronym which stands for Dance Awareness, No Child Exploited. At NRB 2019, she discussed with me trends in dance in which objectification and exploitation of young ladies occur. Here now from that conversation is Mary Margaret Bodden. I started dancing at the end of uh, elementary school, 
and uh, it had been kind of a dream as a little girl to start taking dance. And uh, so at the end of my fifth grade year, my mother said it was time that I could take dance. And she signed me up, and we went to the store and got all the equipment, you know, the leotard and the uh, tights and the ballet shoes. And, you know, it was one of those times where what you dreamed about actually uh, integrated with the practical uh, time you had in the dance studio because I had a wonderful time in the dance classroom. And I think it's because God has created us to integrate mind, body, and spirit. And the research benefits show that children who are in a healthy dance setting really increase in confidence, insecurity, and actually with myself, I really learned to worship Jesus through dance. Mm. And it's obviously a, a health and exercise element as well, performance, uh, oh yeah. expression, yeah, a lot that, of benefits, obviously. Yeah, that's part of the research benefits when you're in an age-appropriate setting. I want you to take us now through somewhat of a timeline as you have observed and been involved yeah. in in dance, dance organizations, the teaching and performance of dance, especially over the last well, I would say few years, but a number of years, yeah. maybe even a decade or so with respect to perhaps yeah. the types of expression that you are observing with respect to dance and how that has really created some concern. Yeah. Um, about 15 years ago, one of the little girls that I'd worked with at our church in our uh, Christian musicals that we gave annually for our congregation, she grew up and she invited me to a dance concert concert, excuse me, at her college. And so I went. I was so excited to go. But I went. I was so surprised because uh, there were some catcalls uh, during the dances and a lot of sexualized, objectified movement. And I was kind of stunned. But I thought, oh, well, it's an aberration. Uh, these are young people, and maybe this is just this year's concert. So I didn't think too much about it, although it disturbed me. But I went back the next year and there was more sexualized, objectified dance, more cat calls between dances as well as during dances. And uh, I didn't like it. I don't like seeing women objectified. But I thought, well, these young people are 18 and over, so I guess they can make their own choices. I don't like it. Until I begin to see that in the high school dance recitals that I began attending to support the, the dancers in my dance ministry at church. And then I begin to see that same objectified sexualized dance in junior high dances at the June dance recitals. And then I began to see it on the elementary school level with children being put in an adult costumes, choreography, and music. And then I began to even see it in the preschool setting of little girls five years and under in adult material, adult songs, adult costumes. And at that point, uh, I got so disturbed. I had to go to the computer and begin to research because I knew in my heart this is wrong. As a dancer, I never experienced a concert with this kind of content. But um, I went, I got uh, some research done with experts and uh, that really started the founding of danceawareness.com and this uh, objective I've had to create educational research materials to give to adults in this culture 
not my opinion, but researched experts so that they can know the difference between healthy, age-appropriate dance and harmful sexualized dance. Mary Margaret Bauden here on The Intersection. Learn more through danceawareness.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's author, blogger, and podcast host Laurie Polich Short. In our recent conversation, she discussed her devotional book, 40 Verses to Ignite Your Faith, Surprising Insights from Unexpected Passages, Offering Scriptural Lessons from Lesser-Known Sections of the Bible. From that conversation, this is Laurie Polich Short. A lot of us know what we're doing the 40 days before Easter, but then the churches fill up and a lot of people who come twice a year are there. And and then as well as the rest of us who um, leave on Easter morning, and I think you're right. It's like, well, now what? And this book actually was birthed because when I do quite a lot of speaking and I noticed, I I started paying attention to a comment I would always get. People would say, you pointed out something in that passage that I've never seen before. And so enough of those comments, I began to think, gosh, there really is a need for a book that goes beyond the verses that we all know, that we post on social media, that we find encouragement from, and there's certainly nothing wrong with those verses, but there are so many hidden verses, <laughs> maybe like the next verse or the previous verse or another verse that you've skipped over a hundred times when you've read something that have so much insight for our faith, especially when we're going through difficult times. And sometimes the promises that we're reading don't seem to be coming true in our life. And we wonder, Lord, what are you doing? And so this book is packed with the verses that you don't usually see and lifts out the insights that these verses have to offer us, especially in times of discouragement or waiting or wondering what God is up to. Would you say that this book and the content in it would be maybe compatible with some of the things you've written before, or is this kind of a a new adventure for you? You know, I would say both, Bob, because I, I, I definitely pick up on the theme. I've, I've come to be known in my last couple of books uh, called Finding Faith in the Dark and When Changing Nothing Changes Everything about encouraging people when they're going through times where they don't know what God is doing and they need to hold on to their faith. And so certainly this kind of takes people to the source of all my wisdom, which is the Word of God. And I, so that theme is definitely part of this book, but I would say it is a different book for me because it's more devotional in nature. Um, it's something that you can read and chew on slowly. You can read one a day or one a week, and there's reflection questions after each entry. And it's it's kind of more of a, a, a companion book, really. And I actually have a study with Right Now Media, an eight-week study that accompanies the book. So if you're in a small group, you can do it with other people. But it's certainly something you could do on your own. But it's the perfect thing to do after Easter when we've just celebrated the resurrection and this miracle that's happened. And then we go back to our normal lives and go, okay, where is that resurrection faith? And I think that this book could be a big help for people um, just deepening their relationship with God. 
you have some of these, as we might say, maybe lesser known or in between verses in the scriptures. And let's, well, you have Old and New Testament. Let's go New Testament for, to talk about some of these specific verses. We go to John chapter 11. Now, this uh, is at the time of the death of Lazarus. Actually, this whole story, we learn a bit about Jesus and his resurrection in this this whole passage. He he actually said, I am the resurrection and the life. So we, we see a little foreshadowing here, but we see in John eleven thirty five, our Lord's response to the death of his dear friend Lazarus. What did you really pull out of that particular verse? Well, you know, this verse has always caught my eye because, Bob, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. So if you're going to memorize scripture, this is a great place to start. <laughs> That's right. And I've heard uh, people say that. Yes. <laughs> but absolutely, this verse has always caught my eye. Um, just the fact that Jesus, we know that he knew what he was about to do, that he knew he was. I mean, he purposely waited for Lazarus to die. Um, because he was going to rise him from the dead, to raise him from the dead. And so the fact that he was so moved in his spirit that he would weep with Mary and Martha uh, over the death of their brother, just to me shows something of the character of God, that even when he knows there's amazing things ahead of us, he is with us in our suffering. He's not distant. He's not uncaring. He is in it with us. And that for me, when I'm going through difficulty, makes all the difference to know that I have a God who's with me in it. Laurie Short here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website laurieshort.com. We're nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. There at the homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection podcast, as well as the podcast itself. It's also available through iTunes. You'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content, including recently added content from the 2019 NRB Convention in California. You can find content from The Meeting House program through the Faith Radio app. Learn how to download it for your smartphone or tablet by visiting the faithradio.org website. Also through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find information on how to access content through other apps. Again, the website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.